No matter where your business is in Canada, connectivity shouldn't be a concern. Whether your business is rural, remote, or urban, reliable, scalable internet is available to you and your business. Explore Business is expanding our network. With our extensive fiber, fixed wireless, and satellite networks, we're able to bring you the connectivity your business deserves, with the ability to grow right where you are. With investments in fiber and 5G technology, Explore Business is your new choice for business internet. Get connected with Explore Business today. Are you ready to clear a new path? Welcome to Clearing a New Path podcast, a space for the underrepresented voices in rural Canada. I'm your host, Shauna Ray. Each episode, we'll speak authentic truth because it's the truth that connects us. We'll examine issues, solutions, and hope outside of the city limits. Clearing a New Path podcast is an invitation to listen and learn along with me, on the road to building a more united, feminist, anti-racist rural Canada, one rooted in diversity and driven by reconciliation. Let's learn together, clearing a new path. episode came about when I was looking up how many churches are for sale or even abandoned in rural and remote spaces in Canada. I couldn't find an exact number, but I did find a story about the selling off of Catholic churches in Newfoundland. In 1999, 39 men, former residents of Mount Cashel Orphanage in St. John's, filed statements of claim at Newfoundland and Labrador Supreme Court claiming they were abused during the 1940s, 50s, and 60s by members of the Irish Christian Brothers who ran the orphanage. The men won. And since the Supreme Court of Canada refused to hear the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of St. John's appeal in 2021, over 100 men have now come forward. Their claims are expected to exceed $50 million, hence selling off churches to pay. I was then looking for someone who had an expertise in repurposing or reimagining churches in rural and remote communities that are maybe no longer in use or even abandoned. That's when I found Kendra Fry. Kendra has a long career in the arts, mostly as a general manager in theater, before beginning her work creating multi-sectoral community hubs for the common good. Working with partners from across Canada, Kendra unlocks the hidden value in historic building sites creating broad cross-sectoral community centers that involve the arts, housing, food security, education, and many other not-for-profit organizations. She is currently working on 18 sites across Canada. 
Kendra is the author, along with Milton Friesen, of No Space for Community, an in-depth look into the loss of infrastructure due to faith building closures in Ontario. Kendra is an associate with the National Trust for Canada, where she works on enhancing the community value of and engagement with historic places, including museums, faith buildings, cultural sites, and historic landscapes. Kendra, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. And I'm really excited about digging in to exactly what it is that you do. So maybe you could give us a bit of an overview of of what you do and the different hats that you do wear. I wear a lot of hats, but I think it's easiest to put them all under the title that I call Curator of Community. It's a title I totally made up myself to try to describe how all the things that I do come together. So essentially, I'm always trying to bring community together in a way that enhances the common good in in various aspects. So I am the general manager of Stratford Summer Music, and I'm uh, talking to you today from Stratford, and Stratford Summer Music is up this summer. There you go. That's something I wanted to to say and has 46 concerts on this July and August here in beautiful Stratford. I am a, a church repurposer. I help churches and communities who have churches that they want to work with to recreate, reimagine, and put their church buildings back into use on behalf of the common good. And we'll talk more about what that looks like in various ways. Uh, And I do that through my own company, Creative Collisions, as well as through Trinity Centers Foundation out of Montreal. And I work with the National Trust for Canada on uh, heritage sites and on uh, recreation of house museums and heritage spaces into places that are more activated as well. And then I also work on a bunch of other heritage sites here, there, and everywhere for everyone. Basically, surplus space meets community is where my intersections are. That's a lot. I'm sure it keeps you really busy and very, well, with a really creative mindset, I would say. Are we seeing an increase of abandoned places of worship across Canada? Abandoned, i.e. the congregation or the diocese walks away and locks the door, doesn't lock the door and leaves it, is quite uncommon. Not in use is more common or not able to continue to be in use in the near future because there isn't enough people to upkeep and uh, maintain the space that they have relative to the scale of what is usually quite a large building. What are the choices that People that own churches uh, or organizations that own churches. I guess the better question is, who owns the churches? Yeah, that is the first thing. The pastors don't own the churches. Every structure is different, but most churches belong to a diocesan structure that has some sort of trusteeship and the congregation has some sort of trusteeship. That's not the case for everyone. Um, every structure is slightly different. So it's not a, it's not a simple question to answer. But some combination of a congregation and a diocesan structure usually owns the building to start with when I come to them. That is a lot of what we look at. So when you ask, what do you do with them? The the question of governance comes up really quickly. And, you know, I just never thought I'd be a person who cared about governance or talked about it anywhere near as much as I do. But who owns what is key to the 500-year shift that we're in in Canada? 
governance becomes key uh, when we consider what we're going to do next with these spaces. And that change involves the redistribution of wealth and power. And that redistribution also allows us all to have voice in how our community spaces are upkept and used and who has access to what. And it allows us to share responsibility for difficult spaces over a larger number of people. So often one of the first things I do is redesign governance structures in various ways so that while the church will remain in ownership of the land, usually, not always, other people are involved in the governance, the fundraising, the upkeep, the management, the decision-making of those spaces to create third spaces that are um, more broadly uh, usable by community at large. If your first space is your home and your second space is your work, your third space is a place where you may connect with other people who you didn't invite, um, who don't particularly have a purpose. And the, the value of third spaces is that it encourages us to connect with people who are other than us, people who are not people in our silos, who aren't in our social media echo chambers. So coffee shops are good third spaces. Libraries are excellent third spaces. Parks are brilliant. And churches, when they're doing their work right, are wonderful third spaces as well, where you see the full depth and breadth of community and begin to understand your position within it and the opportunities that exist there. So that's why we need to keep them. Very often in a rural context, churches are your last standing third space. Your school is closed. Your post office is gone. You didn't have a cafe to begin with. The church is what you have left. What do you mean by a couple of things? One of them that sticks out for me is when churches are doing things right, what does that mean? When churches are asking themselves, not what do I want to do with this space for the next 15 years, but what do I want to activate in the world? What is the change that I want to see and be? How can I be a part of that? And how can I have a 100 or 200 year plan for that? Then they find their new missions and their new place within community. One of my colleagues calls the title of these questions God questions. When we're caught up in God questions like how many people will come on Sunday and should we take the pews out or not, we aren't imagining ourselves part of a broader ecosystem. Community questions are what is the change that is meant to happen in the world and how can I be a part of that? And to be clear, churches don't have any money. That's why they're coming to me to begin with. So I'm not expecting them to come up with the funds to create the change they want. I'm expecting them to come with open hearts and minds and take on an adaptive mindset that allows other people in and allows for a crowdsourcing of what comes next. I also wanted to touch on the 500-year redistribution of wealth because I am fascinated by that and I wholeheartedly believe in what you're saying. So can you explain a little bit more about that? Someone asked me the other day, I have a teenager, and someone asked me the other day why teenagers have so many mental health problems now. And the context of it was a somewhat, not actually that much older person, but a person in their 50s who was saying, why can't they just get themselves together? And I, I found myself um, going off about 500-year change and understanding that 
the disconnect, the upheaval, the discontent, the mental health issues that we're suffering, the extreme division between the haves and the have-nots, the price of our food, the way our economy is working, the changes in the environment, all of this points to 500-year change. So for a long time, we have been in the great and wonderful situation of being on a path of growth and of capitalism working and of being able to imagine that each generation has more than the one that came before. Those times are done, but we imagine that that means that no one has ever been where we've been before. But if we're students of history, we know that lots of people have been where we have been before. We're just not perceiving yet that small changes won't do it that this is 500-year change, that we have to embrace a whole-scale reimagining of all of the systems and a redistribution of almost everything if we're going to come through this. Now, I want to say, Shauna, I don't know what that means. Let's not have everybody call me and ask what to do next. I don't know. I know that if I go to the music conference and then I go to the placemakers conference and then I go to the environmental group conference and then I go to the homeless people and then I talk to the churches and then I talk to the United Way, that eventually all of us will begin to see what structural shifts are required to take on the level of change that we're being called to. In your work, how do you get connected with church organizations? Like, how do you get connected with the folks that are interested in reimagining their places of worship? Do they come to you typically? Either they come to me or they come to Trinity Centers Foundation or the National Trust for Canada, who are the other two entities with whom I work. Although as one of my colleagues described it, it's uh, a little annoying if you go to all three because surprise, I'm behind all three doors. There are other people obviously with whom I work who are uh, super brilliant and bring a massive set of skills to the work as well. Sometimes it's the congregations, sometimes it's the diocese, sometimes it's a city councillor or an interested uh, third party, almost anyone um, really. And then lately we've started talking with legions and surplus barns and all kinds of things, right? Are people shocked by the costs? What goes into building a plant? It depends on the scale of the thing. So it can be relatively small or completely massive. So, you know, I think about, I worked with years ago, Richmond Hill United Church, and we did a stakeholder event and invited in all the community and gathered input from them about what they thought should come next. And then that congregation felt like they were able to move forward with that. So they did. So good. And then I think about Weston Park Baptist Church, who is on a the UP Express and the Go Line in Toronto. And they went into a joint limited partnership with a developer and they're redeveloping their entire site with two massive towers. I think one's 40 stories and one's 32 stories and 60,000 square feet of new build space. Those are very different things. One is two months and a little bit of work. One is probably eight years and a lot of work. You know, it sounds like a the best case scenario, you know, you get to reimagine, you know, 60,000 square feet of new space, except with that 500 year lens, you're trying to imagine it for a thing that doesn't exist yet. 
And so it has its own complexities and challenges. So sometimes it involves housing. Sometimes it involves new partners. Sometimes it involves new grants. Sometimes it involves selling something. Sometimes it involves an entire shift of governance and transferring the governance to a different group. Almost anything you can imagine is involved. So what the cost is could be $10,000 or it could be 20s of millions when you're looking at a Western Park Baptist, right? What are some of the most interesting transformations that you've been part of, specifically in rural communities, a rural context, but but maybe some of the bigger communities as well? This isn't my story. This is Graham Singh, who is the director of the Trinity Centers Foundation. Uh, he has a cottage in a place called St. Lucie in Quebec outside of Montreal. And the uh, people in St. Lucie had a, a little church and I, I I'm going to make a guess at how big St. Lucie is. Please forgive me, St. Lucie people. I've only been there once. I'm coming again in a few weeks, but I've only been there once. I'm going to say it's a place of 750,000 people. It's not not a lot of people. And they had a church and they came to Graham and said, you know, what would you do with this church? And he said, I would make it into what in Quebec is called a nursery and in Ontario, we would call a daycare. And everybody said that would be really great because there's actually a lot of kids in this little village and we would love to have our kids go to daycare in the village so that we could drop them off, go to our work, come back, they'd be there. You know, if a neighbor wanted to pick them up, that'd be amazing. So Graham started that process. And partway through that process, they kind of realized that the church wasn't ideal for the nursery, for the daycare. But there was the town hall. And the town hall actually had kind of too much space for the number of people who were working there, you know, municipal councillors and and those kinds of people, bureaucrats. And so the town hall and the church switched. So the town hall moved into the church and the nursery daycare went into the town hall. And as I understand it, that uh, exchange is still in process. And I'm really looking forward to seeing how it's going because we've only been at this for a year and a half. Yeah. But I think it was a really great way for a community to come together and go, what are the assets that we have what are the dreams that we have as a community and how can we make those happen with humility and presence and long vision, right? There are challenges involved with rural communities and reimagining places of worship. Can you talk about some of those challenges that, that happen because perhaps of the, the sheer lack of the amount of people? That's it in a nutshell. And uh, I imagine the people listening to your podcast already know this. The problems that also make it hard for rural communities to get services, smaller tax bases, um, no industry to support, spread out um, over large spaces, make it hard to build things in faith communities too. Um, so the reliance in faith communities, in rural faith communities, always ends up being on the volunteers which is asking an awful lot of our rural communities who are already probably pushed for volunteerism, right? But a lot of the methodologies that we have to unlock the value of faith buildings into new community hubs or food security hubs or new housing or any of these things that we have in an urban context rely on an assumption of land value and a density of people who want to live there. So there are solutions in rural contexts that have to do with bringing together a broad spectrum of users so that you can access funding that comes from the arts and funding that comes from seniors and funding that comes from healthcare, you know, as well as agricultural funding to create what tend to be more 
pure third spaces, um, kind of like mental health meets physical health meets arts kinds of spaces, right? But uh, it's still a lot of volunteer effort. Now, the advantage that the rural contexts have is that that volunteer effort contains skilled tradespeople. And that's not always the case in an urban context, or if it is, the skilled tradespeople maybe don't want to dedicate their time in quite the same way that they will if this is their last standing third space, the place that their community gathers. People are more likely to put their um, sweat equity into that. You mentioned something previously when when we spoke uh, about some interesting ownership when it comes to the land itself or digging into that research about who owns the church and and where it's located and and whether there's a lease on it or it's owned by a farmer and can you explain a little bit about that Yeah a lot of churches are really old so once in a while we find out that no one knows who owns the church <laughs> <laughs> that's always fun. And then it's not uncommon that uh, a family, particularly a farm family, has either leased or donated or ad hoc donated the land that the church stands on, or in fact, the entire church to the community. And so then you get into families actually having stakes over something that everyone thought belonged to someone but never did. So that's extremely interesting when that happens. And then in a forward-looking fashion, you know, when we're in more built-up centers, even like Stratford, it's not uncommon that you can lease some of the church land, say, to build housing or to build new offices or whatever, but it's a a 99-year land lease that reverts to the congregation in the end. And so some of those land leases are now reverting. And so it's a good reminder to ourselves that 100 years is not as long as we think it is. And so those those are interesting navigations as well. Dwindling congregations are happening across North America, I would say, or probably globally. I keep going back to it, the 500-year the plan. Why is it so difficult specifically for faith-based organizations that are owning to kind of let go of the reins. Personally, I think it has to do with purpose. It's their purpose on earth, they believe, is to be a pastor. And so they can't think far enough ahead past their own longevity. Mm, It's never the pastor. The pastor can always think beyond their own longevity. It's very rare that the pastor is what's holding them back. The pastors in Canada are some of the most risk-taking, groundbreaking people I've met. And they are almost communists in the good sense a lot of the time. I love to hear that. I love to hear that. Yeah, they're almost never the problem. No one is the problem. It's unfair to people who have held something in trust for so long and have carried it through half a century or more of volunteerism and have seen their families grow up within mm. this context and have defined all of their social structures around this context. Remember that churches created our original hospitals mm-hmm. and they were the start of the union movement and the United Church women were hugely influential in getting the vote. And so these were 
groundbreaking, revolutionary places where great ideas happen. We imagine that time since World War II, that the framework of what happened from World War II to now was always going to continue. And we didn't do a very good job of marking everything that came before World War I. And that this time of phenomenal growth and technological change was impossible to maintain forever. And so it's the same reason somebody said to me the other day, why can't I hire any students? Why does no one want to work anymore? And I said, you're asking the wrong question. If you look statistically at the number of baby boomers and the number of Gen X and Y and millennials, there aren't enough of us to equal them. And so it's not that they don't want to work. This was always going to happen. There was never going to be enough of us for them. And so we have to stop pointing fingers at each other and accept that the structures and the things that we have taken as normal, as simple as the fact that a restaurant that says it opens at nine will open at nine, I think we all know is no longer the case. And people imagine that that's because people are lazy, but that's not actually what's happening. We legitimately don't have enough people to meet the needs of the people who aren't working anymore. And those people who aren't working, my dad is 81 and he rides his bike like four hours with his friends and goes out to lunch and then rides back, right? When I think about my grandfather, that is unheard of. <laughs> like these, this generation is entirely different than the ones that came before the generation of baby boomers. And so their expectations of the world are different and we're just not meeting it, right? Lately in the news, there have been Catholic churches that have been found guilty of heinous things, criminal activity, uh, yep. and in retribution, have had to sell off some of their property. So I'm curious about who owns Catholic churches, and I'm guessing the diocese, but how does that play into what you do? How, is the Catholic church an anomaly typically? or So they are an anomaly in the sense that it's a very hierarchical structure. So unlike the United Church, where the congregations have significant tr control over their individual parishes, that's not the story of the Catholic Church. So the Catholic Church is deeply hierarchical. Our work to this point has not tended to be with Catholic churches, but that is in motion now too. To this point, the Catholic structure has been quite large and has managed its own um, concerns over time. But I believe from what we're seeing right now, the Trinity Centers Foundation is doing a, a series of roundtables in Montreal about the status of faith communities and faith buildings and where we go next. And for the first time, we're seeing Catholic uh, individuals joining those conversations. So there's that. Uh, but then there's also, you know, we look at what's happening in Newfoundland right now, and uh, it's an unsolvable situation. It's entirely fair that that people receive repayment for the things that happen to them. It's unfortunate that the nature of that is such that it will probably take out every Catholic church in Newfoundland because they'll all have to be sold in order to raise enough funds to meet that need. So that's a real hollowing out of society. 
that is problematic in various ways. And there are much smarter people than me who are more embedded in that concern in, in the east of Canada who are trying to figure that out and figure out how do you keep community activation while also um, managing the situation, right? I want to go back to something you said at the very beginning uh, about repurposing faith-based structures into, I think you said common good. And so what does that mean? All kinds of things. My first site was Trinity St. Paul's Center for Faith, Justice, and the Arts in Toronto at Bloor and Spadina. And it's a 44,000 square foot building that houses four congregations, Tafel Music Baroque Orchestra, Viva Youth Singers, Toronto Consort, a restaurant, a daycare, and another 400 organizations who call it home. So it is, along with the Miles Nadell Jewish Community Center that is doing a very similar thing, they're almost side by side, and they are the community centers for the Annex. That's great work. And because of that, they are crowdsourcing what it costs to keep that building up. Everyone is paying less than they would anywhere else, but collectively, it's plenty to keep the place running for people, right? There are churches who are doing food security centers. So everything from just being the the hub for the handing out of food to one in northern Quebec that actually has uh, a hydroponics. So they're growing lettuce vertically in the sanctuary. That's super cool, right? And then in smaller places, I think about Chaplot near Sudbury, Under Bay. Let's say Sudbury. And it is a little movie theater and cafe now. And the congregation is still there on, on Sunday, I believe. That was the last I'd heard. But during the rest of the week, it's a place to go and see a movie or have a cup of tea. Or... These are great built infrastructure. And this with my National Trust hat on, the greenest building is the one that already exists. So if we can avoid knocking them down and find all kinds of uses from them, for them from people's houses to cafes to restaurants with some gorgeous restaurants in Stratford that are in old churches to community hubs to food security to health centers to mental health to offices then we honor the history of the fact that they were built for community usage we allow our landscape to remain varied and interesting in a way that we simply can't afford to build anymore And we keep the embedded carbon that went into building those buildings inside them instead of knocking them down and starting all over again. Is the faith part part of the community that you look to preserve? The process of what happens in any of these is ask the building what it's meant to be. Ask the community what it needs. Ask the congregation if they wish to meet that need and how they see themselves within it. So first you have to ask the building. Some buildings are falling down or are horrible or terrible things happened in them and no one wants to be in them anymore or they're filled with mold or whatever and they're not meant to continue. And there are 27,000 of these across Canada. So we're not going to save every single one, nor does that even make sense, really. So first ask the building. Then you ask the community you know, do you want this building saved? What is its story? What does it mean to you? What is its landscape? Tell me stories about how you relate to it and what you imagine it's meant to be next on behalf of the community working with the congregation, ideally, but not necessarily. 
And then we ask the congregation, do you want to meet that need? Now that's assuming there's a congregation left. So I have a couple right now where I have, well, I have one where I have nine people left and another where I have four people left. So at that point, you're not really asking the congregation. I would say, I don't know if I look at all the sites we've done in 80% of the cases right now, the congregation remains, but they usually don't remain in the sole driving position. So they're either sharing governance with other groups or they've sold the building and are renting it out like Knox here in Stratford is now, or like they're renting back out some of their space after they've sold it to someone else, or they have built all new housing and are building a new space within it for themselves that's a shared space with community. Sometimes they remain in the driver's seat, like Trinity St. Paul's in Toronto, but Trinity St. Paul's started this 30 years ago, so they've had some time to, and they're in Toronto on the subway, right? And so that's why you have to look at the whole context and um, be realistic about what is happening in your community and where the need is the strongest, because there is need everywhere. And I believe we do ourselves a disservice when we identify ourselves as one thing only. So at the risk of ticking off my National Trust colleagues, when people say always heritage first, I think, uh, always? Like, <laughs> like it kind of kind of depends for me on the context. I would love to preserve the heritage. I would love to preserve the congregation. I need to know what that whole town needs before it's more an act of placemaking than anything. Is there a preconceived notion that because you want to become designated heritage, that there's money attached to that? I think a lot of people are under the notion that, oh, this is a heritage site, so we'll be able to get grant money and things like that. It's an extraordinarily small amount relative to the repair deficits that we're seeing. Additionally, we have a skills deficit in Canada, which comes back to something that's dear to my heart too, which is why we need to open up and welcome in immigrant communities because we have a a horrifying skills deficit when it comes to historic buildings. And we can train Canadians as fast as we want, but we need people who have real world experience from other countries as well. So we need to be welcoming in those stonemasons and those bricklayers and the people who understand the woodwork and including them in our communities and our society if we want to keep historic buildings standing, right? And also doing the training programs and encouraging, you know, students to join into the trades and to use uh, their hands and to create things, right? Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of training, mm. your organization has some webinars that folks can participate in if they have an interest in reimagining, right? Yeah, so Trinity Centers Foundation has uh, just launched its uh, master class, which um, was generously sponsored by the McConnell Foundation, I believe. I hope I've got that right. And that master class just launched last week, and you can still sign up. And there will be eight sessions that will take you through all the various aspects of the things that we have learned over time 
about the repurposing, co-purposing, recreation, reimagination of faith buildings and how you might think about your faith building or your community's faith building in relation to the whole. So, yeah. So if you go to the Trinity Centers Foundation website, you can um, sign up for that masterclass there. We'll put that in the show notes. What are the things that you're most proud of that you've been participating in? I think there's a, a number of things, but the scale up that I'm seeing right now that I'm very excited about is uh, both a portfolio-based approach and a neighborhood approach. So working with the Anglican Diocese of Huron, when we are given that many sites to look at together and to look at a huge, broad area, a great deal of which is rural or small urban That gives us the opportunity to look at uh, a broad sector of society and ask what is needed as a whole and trade pieces to unlock other pieces, right? So a singular site, once the building is spoken to you, is a bit hard to navigate around. But if you have, as we do right now, I think we have 22 sites in Huron, that gives you a huge opportunity to really uh, create something on a broader scale. And for the Anglican Diocese of Huron, who is hugely groundbreaking and um, revolutionary in their approach to imagine themselves part of the whole of society and to reinvigorate the things that they believe in as people of faith. That's pretty cool. And then on a, a smaller but as important scale, I really am enjoying connecting right now with urban planners and municipalities and um, cities and towns to talk about neighborhood. So if, as is often the case in smaller towns, I think about like Owen Sound and London, Ontario, not uncommon to have four churches bordering a downtown core area or a downtown park. What does that mean? How do we look at that as opportunity to reinvigorate our downtown cores? How do we uh, step outside of our fear of the um, sacred and say, we can be sacred and secular together and we can create something amazing together that is a gift to all people. So that kind of neighborhood placemaking, I think is quite exciting right now when communities are willing to talk with us and when faith communities are willing to talk with each other to create a new vision for their downtowns, right? I love that. That is exciting. It's wonderful to work with people for whom there's no barriers of conversation. Um, we can discuss all things and then discern together good plans and then work with congregations to figure them out and work with neighborhoods. But the process involves a lot of listening and a lot of engaging and a lot of stepping outside of your needs and into the needs of as many people as possible. So back to the common good, right? Service, basically, right? Bingo. Kendra, it is fascinating what you do. (laughs) And I really appreciate uh, your time today. And I hope we can check in again because uh, the stuff that you're doing is pretty amazing. So thank you. Yeah, thank you, Shauna, for being interested and for bringing the rural voice forward for people. Want to keep the conversation going? Subscribe to the Clearing a New Path newsletter, drop me an email, follow the podcast on social media, and or you can leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Clearing a New Path podcast artwork is supported by the graphic design 
of Katie Wilhelm. And the music branding is by The Hankering Studio. The podcast is produced by Radar Media in Thames Center, Ontario. It is the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, and Mississauga or neutral peoples who once used this land as their traditional beaver hunting grounds. The First Nations communities closest to the studio are Chippewa of the Thames First Nation, Oneida Nation of the Thames, Muncie, Delaware First Nation, and the Chippewas of Kettle and Stony Point. I will speak to many more people across Turtle Island this season, and as a settler here, I'm committed to deepening understanding of colonialism, the TRC's calls to action, and to reframing responsibilities to land and community. I am grateful to Mother Earth and Creator for the opportunity for love and connection, and to the spirits of the elders and the medicine people who still walk the earth. Until next time, 